0: Welcome to Tales from the Pit. Michael Swaim here, going unscripted for the intro, which is unusual for this pod, and I'll tell you why. I'm in a weird state right now, y'all. I'm between things in terms of my mood meds. I'm on three things right now. Lamictal, aka Lamotrigine. I'm on Clomipramine. I'm on Risperidone. It's quite a cocktail. I don't know that it's right for me. Um, I'm having every day some panic attacks, some issues, some runaway worry, anhedonia, inability to enjoy things that I used to enjoy. Um, it's scary stuff, but I know it will pass. And I like hearing people talk frankly about mental health because it makes me feel less alone. So hopefully, if you're out there on that journey, this makes you feel a little less alone. It is a tough, Road trying to find exactly the right mood meds if you have a physiochemical issue uh, because everyone's brain chemistry is so different, we know so little about the brain. Anyhow, I kind of wanted that out in the open because I struggle with my sentences a little bit in this episode, and that's why uh, I was very nervous while recording, even though I've done thousands of podcasts without being nervous for many years. I'm now nervous doing them until this issue gets sorted out. Um, so, yeah, be gentle. I think Jason brought a lot of great information to the table, though. And as warned in the body of the episode, I'm gonna go ahead and start off with a reading from my novel, my novel, The Climb, that just came out. Uh, I'm recording the audiobook right now, so here's one of the early portions of the novel. And then we'll get into a conversation with author Jason Pargen about the business of book writing. And I guess the only trigger warning you need is that it might suck some of the glamor and romance out of writing books for you, especially if you're someone aspiring to be a book writer. Consider this Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, but for books. Uh, We're going to get into it. It's going to get messy. We'll talk about what you have to do to sell your book nowadays um, and in really any creative field, what you need to do to get your brand out there in this new reality we all live in where TikTok is king for now till the next thing happens and speaking of the next thing happening i'm gonna wrap it up here so this is from the climb This is the story of a drop of rain that landed in a frying pan, and everything that occurred before it returned to being vapor. The first part is called Roots. Chapter One If you could sit very still and watch a tree grow from nothing, it would look like a firework. Pulling in energy with its starter roots, it would burst from the soil, thrust upward on a column of wood, and bloom bright and fierce in the sky for only a century or two before fading again having sown the requisite dynamite into the ground needed to birth the next volley of green explosions. If you could sit very still and watch a universe grow from nothing, it would look like a tree. It, too, is an explosion, already fading. But, in the middle, there's a nice long cool period, where the universe is just a tree, just a real dazzler hanging low there in the void. Well, so, this book is about a person named Sinnoh, who lived there. Then, in that universe, at the very bottom of a giant tree just like that, nestled in the roots. And although Sinnoh swam through time and space at a rate that seemed natural to him and those around him, he couldn't help but see things that way, as fireworks. Sinnoh could hear the trees exploding. He could feel the universe already starting to fade. If he focused, he could even watch his own life speed by in its entirety, even smaller than a tree, even shorter. It frightened him. Bang was the sound of a tree's life. Shhh was the sound of a person's. Even shorter. Shhh. Sometimes he didn't even have to focus. The visions just came, time speeding by in a panic. Time didn't actually do that, but Sinnoh was able to feel exactly how he would feel if it did, just by thinking. This was because he possessed an imagination and an associated system of electrochemical impulses in his brain that he used to make judgments and plans. Things he imagined often triggered endocrinal baths that flushed through his bloodstream, a bodily function he perceived as emotions. It didn't matter much if they were real or not, or true or not. Both emotion and imagination are something of a double-edged sword. Imagination allowed Sinnoh to recall or construct a wide range of things in his mind, while emotion added some heft to it, music an underlying color that was itself a kind of judgment of the thing being imagined or the thought held in mind. Emotion was the flavor, heat radiating from a stovetop on which you've just burned your hand. Thoughts came wrapped up in them, automatically, it seemed. Sinnoh felt deeply, got caught up in his thoughts and feelings as easily as fish in a net. Sometimes his brain told him he was the most special person in the world, destined for great things. Sometimes it told him he was as useless as a piece of hammered shit and dragging everyone else he loved down into the mud with him. He would even think sometimes that he was as useless as a piece of hammered shit because he thought he was the most special person in the world. Sometimes Sino's brain told him that when he died, he would live forever as a tiny gray speck of consciousness capable of feeling nothing for all eternity except loneliness. That was a doozy. The trickiest part was, whenever his brain told him that, it seemed just as true as if it were saying rocks are hard. That's how true this horrible thing seemed to Sinnoh sometimes. Lesson Your thoughts and emotions are rarely in sync with the reality of your situation, but your brain is more than happy to write a fun little story afterward to make you think they were. Chapter 2 These unpleasant thoughts would loop and loop so loud inside his mind that Sinnoh often thought he heard someone behind him speaking them like an incantation or curse. Despite this, he was still expected to act pretty much reasonably most of the time, and considered responsible for the outcomes of his choices. Go figure. It never mattered much what was going on around Sinnoh either. Ever since an accident he suffered as a child, his outsized feelings and erratic thoughts seemed to come and go of their own accord. They were tidal swells gargantua tromping through the jungle inside of him. When it got really bad, Sinnoh's feelings could even control what his body did. He would scream and cry and beat himself in the head with the heels of his palms until he left lumps. Sometimes he was so full of the pain attached to the things and thoughts and people around him that he felt like he would dissolve. Sometimes Sinnoh was grateful for the way his brain worked like when he looked at sunlight glittering off sharp shallow scallops of water disturbed by the wind and felt as if he were shining too. He had once found solace in a mate's caress that felt like drilling deep into the ground and drinking the quiet inside until nothing hurt and life was lovely as sleep. Sometimes he felt so sad he wished he had never been born. Sometimes it even felt a little good to feel that sad, which was profoundly confusing. Yet, if you can believe it, Sinnoh had to just keep going on living anyway. Cogitate on that one, Niels Bohr. And that's just emotions. Sinnoh's imagination took him deeper than the quiet in the earth, past the top of the great tree, inside the sun and moon. It could spin stories out of nothing, stoke his longings into bonfires, even make his friends and family laugh and act happy. Naturally, it also fed him detailed visions of pain, sickness, abandonment, and all the other bad things that could happen and which most thinking animals are hardwired to try and avoid. This is what is meant by double-edged sword. Lesson. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both and there you have the facts of life. Chapter 3 Even more dangerously, Sinnoh's imagination loved to concoct elaborate plans for the future and whisper promises to him about how life was going to turn out it did this whether he wanted it to or not he was just on the cusp of manhood yet he had already lashed a bevy of expectations to his unfolding self for starters he expected to grow up to lead his people this would have been completely delusional except for the specific fact that Sinnoh was the son of the person who currently led his people and in their society political power was handed down from parent to child it was still somewhat delusional because of the specific fact that the prophecy that predicted the course of Sinnoh's life had been broken and twisted in the accident. After that, a proxy child was fashioned from corn dough by his mother who could do that sort of thing. It was understood that this other one would do the things Sinnoh had been meant to, make her proud on his behalf, love his soulmate for him and receive their love in return, and so on. Sinnoh also expected to climb the universe. In fact, He hoped to climb higher up the tree than any one of his people ever had, to know the length of it and thereby take measure of the pond he found himself swimming in. He expected, despite the aforementioned accident and the bad thoughts it installed in his head that so often made him feel like a piece of hammered shit, to prove them all wrong someday, win in the end, because he had a good heart. This was pretty delusional, but also something many people believe, so Sinnoh wasn't especially short-sighted in this regard. Lastly, he expected that once he achieved these things, life would cease to be challenging, and he would feel full and content and serene for the rest of his days, or, failing that, find at least some small measure of lasting happiness. This was completely delusional. So Sinnoh possessed an imagination, emotions, and expectations. Check. That's already quite a bit to stuff into eight pounds of electrified meat, but he had other stuff in there too. Here's a brief inventory. He knew he had a soul, because it was tortured. He knew he had a dream, because it lived in him like a knotted muscle that never numbed. He knew he had a calling, because he seemed to do the same sorts of things over and over without much to show for it. He knew he had an ego, because he mostly thought of himself. Lesson: Attachment is the root of suffering, yet it is only through suffering that we grow. Hello everyone, it's your trusty guide Michael Swaim, and welcome to another episode of Tales from the Pit. Uh, You hopefully just heard some kind of reading from my book that I'm going to do, and I thought how appropriate, let's talk about books, and specifically writing. Writing's been a really rewarding career for me. Uh, but it's not necessarily glamorous all the time or as fun as you might think it is from the outside. And here to discuss that harsh reality with me without discouraging future writers, hopefully, is Jason Pargin. Welcome, Jason. First of all, I promise that this is not going to be depressing, this episode.
1: We're not going to talk about how awful this job is. But, But if you want to cheer yourself up a little bit before listening to this, former child actor Corey Feldman is now a musician and has been making music, <laughs> Jesus, for 30 years. The same music. He currently is on tour with Limp Biscuit. He's opening for oh Limp Bizkit. My God. Uh, go out on the internet, on TikTok or wherever you find videos, and find videos of Corey Feldman's live show. It will make your day. Uh, God bless him He's been plugging away at this Trying to be a pop star For a long time He's still out there He's got fans I, I admire I admire his uh, Perseverance Yeah I guess is and the word
0: It's Also perfect for getting you in the mood For a frank discussion About how following your dreams Is not always the right thing to do <laughs>
1: i would I assume cory
0: could learn that, that he
1: has <laughs> residuals or whatever coming from his child acting career that lets him pursue right. his dream as a musician uh there's a whole rabbit hole you can fall down of Corey feldman what his life has been doing since he was in 80s movies uh, like the, the lost Boys, Boys. the verbs and
0: other bees yeah, yeah he was one of the biggest stars in the world for three or four years there and uh they were known as the Brat Pack in reference to another thing that young listeners won't know about, <laughs> the Rat Pack. Yeah. Do you remember that? And when uh, there was a group, it's like him and JTT and someone else were the Brat Pack. Of course. Uh, and I mean, most of them- You were in my world, but I'm a Tiger Beat guy. Most of them are still alive. Not all of them. Most, oh, most of the Rat Pack. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay. Now you brought us back down to earth. Now we're ready for a tale from the pit. Um I think before we do, though, we should do the thing that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, which is plug our books. What do you think about that? Sure. The one that I've been doing the podcast rounds on is my
1: latest called Zoe is Too Drunk for This Dystopia. It's in a series of sci-fi novels I've written. It is the third of the Zoe Ash books. Um, The first two you can get for very little money. I think they're free on Kindle Unlimited. The first one is called Futuristic Violence in Fancy Suits. The second is called Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick. Um, So that's, yeah, that's (laughs) been, uh, if you only know me from the crack days or if you have read the book John Dies at the End, I have continued to do other things, including writing this sci-fi series.
0: Yeah, please be aware, and that is a constant uphill struggle. So, one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode, in and of itself, is to tell our listeners who still don't know that I wrote a novel. Um, I'm calling it an epic fantasy memoir. It's called The Climb, and you can find it at patreon.com/smallbean/shop. The shop tab at our Patreon store. You don't need to be a patron to purchase the book. It's 20 bucks. Um, it's a lushly hand designed PDF because I'll say why I had to do some embedded imagery in certain parts and I couldn't figure out how to do that ebook wise. I'm still working on getting both an ebook and an audiobook version, but the preferred way to imbibe the thing is the book. It's uh, a really heartfelt memoir about my struggles with addiction and mental health. But at the same time, it's a magical realist epic fantasy adventure with robots and spells and stuff like that. Um, It's both at once. I think it's really interesting. I think it's the best thing I've written because I think people writing their first novel often think that uh but i wouldn't be putting it out there as a as a book it's my first book if i didn't think so so check it out the climb now let's do the episode sorry i took more time so you're getting good and concise at your plugs after repetition so
1: to pull back the curtain a little bit this is the 26th podcast appearance i've scheduled to be on since october uh, my book, like in out. reference to the Zoe book. Yeah. Yeah. That I, appearances where I have mentioned and plugged the book at the top, whether it, the, the appearance was an interview, whether it was on just to talk about something else, but where I was there knowing that I would reach people by plugging the book. This is number 26. Uh, the book came out October 31st. So, like a month prior to that is the release window when you're really pushing hard. For pre orders and a couple of weeks after release you keep going and um so at this we're sitting here right now in early December and still I'm still booking things. So that's
0: to give a little brief hint of an idea. Right. And how many what was the max per day that you ever had? How many episodes have I done in a day? I Yeah. I have made the mistake
1: in previous book releases of scheduling three in a day and lost my voice because working at home alone over email, I don't talk a lot. I talk to my wife, but I don't have a job where I'm speaking a lot. So when I have to record five straight hours of podcast stuff, my voice gives out. But that is not unusual. For example, uh, last time I did a series of episodes with uh, Robert Evans for his Behind the Bastards show, and we did, I think, a three or
0: four-part series, but we recorded that all at once. Like, all day. Um, yep, that's how he does it. It's a marathon when you get one of those yeah. slots. Yeah.
1: So, I have, like, right here in front of me, I have some Hall's Cough and Throat Relief. <laughs> I'm not sick, but I have to have them. There's some Classic lozenges. Move. I have uh, hot tea and honey. It's Earl Grey tea, which I only know about from Star Trek. So, it's the only type of tea I drink because I saw Captain Picard drink it when I was a child. right and hot hot and yeah yeah, oral gray hot uh so i have to do that so my voice doesn't give out i realize that people listening to this who have real jobs
0: (laughs) think that is a very silly thing that my body is working on an oil derrick listening to the podcast (laughs)
1: there's waves crashing against the platform and washing crew members overboard as you're listening (laughs) to this um that my body is so frail that it cannot hold up to too much podcasting in one day but I wanted to come on here because I think even if you do not aspire to be an entertainer, and most of the people listening this don't, even though most of them probably did at some point in their childhood. Like I think and most could do it. Make no mistake; it
0: just takes practice.
1: <laughs> um, that I think this is something that lots of people deal with either the problem Mm. of having to become a self-promoter when that is not your personality, because lots of jobs require that, or if you just have a hobby that requires selling, like if you just have an Etsy shop selling some handmade jewelry, like becoming turning yourself into a brand and being able to go out and really push it. Lots and lots of jobs have more of a sales element than you ever bargained for. And there are millions of people who, Never wanted to go into sales, not for one second. In fact, consider that to be one of the scummiest jobs in the world. Find
0: out, oh, this job is mostly sales <laughs> i did not realize and marketing that. and marketing is i always think of as a fake job that only exists to perpetuate itself but in the case of a tiny tiny thing like my book no it is real you really do need marketing marketing is a boulder you push up a hill and i have noted for example that like it's not like the internet where i used to drop a piece of content and this is kind of heartening in a way. I used to drop a piece of content within 48 hours. I know how much it will do its entire lifetime. And it, there's a dwindling return that's a very steep drop off. However, the book, it's like every time I mention it, I sell two copies. Does that make sense or track with your experience? Like I have to keep pushing it. And every time I push it, it does work a little bit. So I am on a, it's a never ending marketing cycle. Like I, I believe in this book, so I'll be selling this book for decade probably.
1: And this is what everyone finds out about marketing something, because again, the world is full of people out there who are selling on eBay or or whatever, and are thinking, "Look, the product is good. I put it up where it can be sold. I'll start a Facebook page or whatever. What's happening? Yeah, boom, like that. That'll like the product will sell itself. Word of mouth, whatever. And then after three months, they've sold three of them." And it's like, oh, my God, it's not just that I have to market this. It's that I have to do a 100 times more marketing than I thought, not to become wildly successful, but just to meet the bare, bare minimum to justify
0: doing this at all. Continuing doing it. So
1: when I'm doing these podcast appearances, yeah, I'm not selling another thousand copies of the book. I'm selling another 25 or 30. And I, but I can see that. Like I can see those sales come in. For example, on podcast appearances, almost all of those go to audio, because podcast listeners are they, like they see audiobooks as just another type of podcast. It's something they can throw on during their commute. So I can watch these sales go right to the the audiobook channel, which is fine, but not fine if you don't happen to have an audiobook to sell yet. Um, but the, right. But, and same thing for TikTok. If I have a TikTok about my book that goes huge, those sales go to audio for whatever reason, TikTokers like audiobooks, So you're, you're not, this is the first thing about selling books is that most, the most people don't know who are not authors is that you're talking about very small amounts. For example, the book Moby Dick during Herman Melville's lifetime
0: sold about 3000 copies. Here we go. 3,000. Jason loves coming at Melville. This is an old beef.
1: Yeah. And uh, he had a day job and he like the, the work and the research, you know, he took a job on a whaling ship to write that book. This is not something that were like me where I just sit down and just pound out a story. I thought of. this was research. This was, you know, he poured his life into this thing and it failed. Like critics are like, eh, it's got some interesting whale stuff in there. Like you read this book now, every, every line is poetry, This is somebody who has poured everything about his life philosophy. And like every word has been carefully placed exactly in the right spot. And the critics at the time like, yeah, "Yeah, if you like whales, you might, yeah, you know. And so that that first week he he put it out, it probably sold a few hundred copies. And over time it dribbled out. You know, at some point he got a report back from his publisher saying, yeah, over the last year, Moby Dick sold 283 copies and he died. And of course, since then it has been printed a
0: billion times it's sold however many hundred million copies. Gosh, but he, I always think about the people who die not getting to know, and it's fine. Fame is not everything, but there is something about knowing your art really connected with people and really like help them or brighten their day or something. And to die and not know that you are one of the most famous novelists ever just after you died. <laughs> it sucks, man.
1: Every all of us would do this for free if the, the economy worked that way. You right. just want yeah. to connect with people. You just want to, you know, I mean, I gave I, I gave away John Dye's D.N. my first book. For five years, it was free. It was just up online. Like, I, I didn't even, the ad revenue I was making off, it did not pay my server bill. It was just up as part of my blog, and I gave it away just because I right. wanted to tell a story to these these strangers. That's one of the things that when young writers approach me, Often the thing they say is, Hey, I'm working on my first book. How do I, like, what are your tips for marketing this for, like, like from when I put it up to sell? It's like, man, are you even sure that it's good yet? Do you even know how to, you ever finished writing the book? Are, like, yeah. isn't your first impulse to tell the most amazing story possible and then worry about, it's like you're coming to me. You haven't even finished the thing, and you're talking about, well, like, what what price point should I put on it? What, what do I? You're already th- thinking yeah. in terms of wh- how you can make this your second job. It's like, man, I, I, I had to. I spent five years, you know, rewriting and editing that book that I had given away for free, and that was like learning how to write. And then it right. someone came to me and said. Hey, do you want to put this into a print edition? And then somebody came to me and said, hey, this should be a movie. Um, So it's I feel like this happens a lot where people kind of are thinking in terms of purely like, how can I make this my job? It's like, man, I'm not sure you want that do you isn't if you
0: Well, you know what's interesting is it's easier to go the other way. For example, I've sat on many panels or judged many art things. There was a time where we did this through our cracked associations. I would be sent to conventions and judge like pitch materials and and sit on a stage and decide what move forward. And the people who succeed actually you can succeed with the reverse. If you love selling and you're really pushy, you can have a bad book and do great. Selling is more important than the book being good. Like as much as I don't want to admit that, that seems objectively true, right?
1: Well that's kind of the thing because there are different personality types. For example, do you consider yourself to be a competitive person? Do you like to compete?
0: No, opposite. I hate I get uncomfortable when competition rears its duplicitous head. Okay. That have you
1: when you worked with let's say Soren uh soren Bowie, for our former cranked associate and Mm. if you ever got into a case where you were in some sort of a game or a trivia contest or something with him have you noticed how competitive he gets and how much he clearly that's like what he lives for
0: yes of course and you he's legendarily that way you realize oh he and i
1: are living different lives okay so, one reason why the media landscape is the way it is, and one reason why creative people are the way they are, is that most creative people do not like to think of themselves that way. Like, I realized that the, the hyper masculine guys, you know, like Joe Rogan, we'll talk about, you know, competition and winning things like that. But most creative people, artists, progressive types, they don't think in terms of, I'm going to conquer this industry, I'm going to destroy my fellow comedians and rise to the top. Mm-hmm.
0: They, they, my
1: script will crush you. Yeah, it's they don't like to think, but they all of them find themselves in what is objectively an incredibly competitive industry. And I mean that just mathematically, for every full-time job in the industry, there are thousands of people who want that job. So like selling your book, the issue with trying to sell a book is that something like 5,000 books are written every day, most of them not published, but they're published for free online. And you're in a media landscape where each and every one of your readers has an infinity of other things they could be looking at. Again, many of them completely free. You don't, Think of, okay, my book, my sales pitch has to conquer all of these. You know, I have to convince them to look at my book instead of looking at pornography. So that's my competitor.
0: You don't like to think that way, but that is literally. I have to convince them to. Type a URL into the URL bar and go to it. That alone is so hard to do. And we know this from Cracked and looking at analytics and stuff. And we knew it before, right, because people who do mass mailing will report, what, 1% open rate? And then a 1% of that will get back to you or do something about it or fall for your scam. Uh, so, yeah, it's really minuscule. The the num- there's a big hurdle towards getting someone to type something in, hit it, click around, put in their payment information and hit enter like that's it's a scant few people who will do all those steps for you, so I do not doubt
1: that somebody that is a not as good of a storyteller but who has all of those the the high testosterone uh, whatever competitive spirit to go out and dominate and That, I do not doubt, gives them the confidence to go and really shape their pitch and give a convincing, you know, to tell an audience and and, and tell them how great their book is and not feel embarrassed by that. Because this is another thing that a lot of creative people do not like to do, is to go out and try to sell yourself. Because, again, that feels scummy. It's like I'm not a stockbroker. I'm not a Wolf of Wall Street guy here. I'm an artist. I'm trying to create beauty in the world. But you realize that if you're trying to make money off of it so you can buy food, you're in a marketplace. That's the world you exist in. So I do not doubt that there are guys like that who are lesser storytellers or whatever. And Hollywood is probably dominated by a lot of people. that are some combination of decent writers and great sellers of their writing because they're the ones who can walk into a meeting and it's not their script that left an impression. It's them that left an impression, where they will say, okay, well, one of the, sorry, go ahead. No, well, they, they may say, well, this script isn't exactly right, but this guy, there's something about him. He's got it. And that's, it, right. and that's the thing yeah. that I, I, you know, for people who are just hearing me for the very first time, for the first several years of my writing career, I remained completely anonymous. I wanted to be totally disconnected from my work because I didn't want people to know my face, my voice, my name, anything, so the idea of like I'm trying to sell my work with the power of my personality is borderline obscene, but now that's all I do.
0: Yeah, and one of the you have to be one of those guys. You have to at least be competitive and grab for things. You don't necessarily have to crush people or be an asshole, but even that sometimes helps. It seems uh, from observation, I don't do it, but I see people succeed that way. And I guess one of the worst thoughts I always have or come back to in my life is in the natural selection way where whatever propagates itself it just stands to reason there will be more of that uh it stands to reason to me actually that grasping greedy competitive assholes are in charge of government and most corporations because that's over time right if you're a decent person and you're not greedy and grasping you're gonna get less than someone who is greedy and grasping you know more than 50 percent of the time and over time it leads to What we see, like where you go, how come these dumb assholes are always at the top? I know there's a lot of nepotism involved, but another thing involved is they were willing to selfishly just go for it. And didn't consider if it pissed anyone else off or if they deserve it. They just wanted the thing and took it, and so now they have it and you don't. And that is a reality. So you have to at least try to fight fire with good force and use your face, your personality, and try and get the book out there or whatever you're selling. Yeah.
1: And the things you, like you you touched on a lot of things there. For example, for example, the self doubt and people talk about you know mm-hmm. like imposter syndrome. <laughs> Because I see people on social media. I follow a lot of authors, and and again, most authors, the vast vast majority, are people with day jobs who are writing a book every year, every couple years, and that book will sell less than five hundred copies. That's the norm for being an author who gets paid to write books. Is it something? Oh jeez,
0: I'm in double digits, man. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, well, I'm talking about the lifetime, like like the entire time the book has existed. That's that's the norm, and they will come on Twitter and they will apologize for promoting their book. And I'm sure that I did that, too, way back in the 90s when I first had to go on message boards and beg people to go, you know, look at this thing. Um, But they're on there like very shy about, yeah, I'm sorry about to be obnoxious on here. But, you know, yeah, yeah, I got a new book coming out next month. So this is, you know, I'm real sorry. Things will be back to normal. It's like, no, you have to turn yourself into the type of person who is unashamed about saying If I didn't think this book was incredible, I wouldn't have written it and I wouldn't have published it and I wouldn't ask people to pay money for it. So the fact that I did all that, I'm now not going to apologize for promoting. It took me years to get to that place mentally where I could come out and say, hey, I may, you know, I I may be an imperfect person in every other phase of life. I may not have any other talents whatsoever.
0: I may not be good with money. I may have no friends, you know, in my... See, even you here are doing the thing you're trying to balance out saying you're a good writer by throwing a bunch of other stuff in as a caveat. But I'm saying that instead of like, I'm awesome, I'm the greatest person in
1: the world saying, look, I'm going to allow myself to have an ego about this one thing. I'm not trying to pretend I'm Superman. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm a nice guy, that I'm fit, that I can do anything else. I'm telling you, I I believe this book is good. I believe it is better than other books you could be buying right now. I believe that it is better right. than other books that, that cost less than this. And I am unabashed about seeing that. That is a place that a lot of people, creative people, can't get to because it feels gross to be proud of your work, even though – secretly deep down they of course think it's great
0: you can't finish a book unless you think the story is great it takes too much energy you had some kind of epiphany or experience with the material that's the fun of it and i mean maybe there's someone out there that's a funny idea to be grimly writing a book that they don't want to uh i guess it could happen if there was a paycheck in it like novelizations of films and stuff but uh yeah, I guess that would be the case, right? Like if you had to write the Goonies novelization, that might be a paycheck that you're just taking. Yeah, there's
1: lots of good money to be made doing things like ghostwriting. There's tons of, of work out there. And that stuff, I don't doubt you could just punch a time clock and say, this is my, you know, this is a job I took to pay the rent. That's fine. You know, you can work in a restaurant. I'm
0: applying for jobs like that right now. Yeah. yeah,
1: You you can work in a restaurant without being passionate about, you know. Cooking steaks, you could just you you learn how long to cook the steak. You learn how to do it, and then and you do the job well, and that's fine. But but for the most part, somebody that is that has a job and in some cases children, and they're devoting their evenings and weekends to writing a novel that's got autobiographical elements, or you know, and and it's talking about something they care deeply about. By the time that sucker is finished, yeah, they're proud of it, and yeah, they. Ideally, they would be able to borrow a little bit of the ego, my, you know, of the egomaniac jerk and go out there and say, Hey, this, let me, let me tell you why this story is compelling. Let me tell you why this story is amazing and do things like, you know, some of the promotion I do and and you're doing right now is where you'll read a piece of your writing, do a reading on, on TikTok of your own writing. And again,
0: there are some people that would be mortified to do that. Because I of- am. I'm doing it even though it seems so – it feels weird. It feels really weird to do. <laughs> but I all I keep reminding myself is what you just said, is that, uh, you think it's really good or you wouldn't be selling it, so sell it. You, you just sort of have to push yourself on stage, you know?
1: Yeah, I guess that's kind of the big reason I wanted to come on this episode and talk about it because I think – This applies to lots of people regardless of the job they're in, even if they're not in the creator economy. It is blown up to a ridiculous degree if you're in the creator economy and trying to make money off of your podcast or your social medias or your whatever. But lots of people have jobs where they are not assertive because they think of assertive people as being loud jerks and they think that the world is being ruined by sharks you know these ultra competitive hard charging guys who are every day watching their stock prices go up and and they're just bulldozing everyone in their way
0: confident even though they shouldn't be by your reckoning they have confidence in a skill set that's lacking that they don't care they're confident anyway that kind of person
1: <laughs> and because we don't want to be that we intentionally shun all of that. And and so when it comes salary negotiation time, for example, it's those jerks who are saying, "Hey, I want I want 5% to keep up with inflation or I'm going to walk. I'm going to I'm going to find another job." And they will get their raise and other people who have been paid the same thing for 8 straight years because they're so shy about going into the boss's office, not because they're afraid they're going to get fired or, or anything like that, but because the awkwardness of having to go in and say, I'm the best supervisor you've got. I, I, I work harder than these other people. I stay late and sell themselves. It feels so gross that that the nicest people often miss out on opportunities because to say that you can adopt a little bit of the jerk's playbook in the name of getting ahead and because it doesn't just have to be a money thing. If you were working in a nonprofit and you thought you had a better way to help the people you're trying to help but you don't want your idea has to beat out other ideas yeah you are always you're in a competition and if you think that like you see the way this this regional manager you know manages the funds and that they're wasting it on the wrong thing it's like i should have that job it's the same thing even if you remove capitalism from the equation the idea of saying you are in a competitive competitive environment, you can't escape competition because you're living in nature, you have to be able to market yourself. And it sounds so gross to tell people what you need is to build a brand because that's that's like the worst thing in the world. But you do have to make it so that the people working above you and your superiors know your name. And they associate the good thing that happened on this project with you because you made that happen and that they know that, you know, because, again, a lot of these people don't like to claim credit for themselves because it's like, well, we're all in this together. It's not about any one individual. It's like, yeah, but if you think you can do the work better. If you think your method is better, your plan is better
0: for the the good thing you're trying to do in this group will help more people even like it can be as noble as shit. It can be that, you know, your solution is really going to make everyone's lives better. You still got to advocate for that solution, very hard to get it to beat whatever is currently going on because I think inertial mass is one of the primary factors of any group of humans, right? It's easier to say no than yes, always, always. Which is part of the reason it's hard to get someone to type the URL and click the button and enter their payment information. Yeah, so that's that advice
1: you get a lot online, but it's always coming out of the worst people. It's some weirdo who's like selling his workout and brain
0: supplements and he's got, or it's what's his name. That super alpha male dude. Who's in prison now. <laughs> yeah. Who Andrew, comes, Andrew Tate. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Tate Tate is Andrew Tate is the guy telling you what we're telling you. Like we're agreeing with Andrew Tate right now. And that doesn't feel good. Right. <laughs> there should be people saying, Hey, go ask what it was like to negotiate
1: with Gandhi or Martin Luther King, any of the great, you know, this great person helped this marginalized group, ask how timid and passive they were in their negotiations, in meetings. And the answer is no, these people were bulldozers. They, you did not get in their way. They had a temper in most cases. They were relentless. Uh, And yeah, they built a brand. They would not have said that. But they they built an idea for, around themselves so that their names meant something, that their face meant something, and their voice meant something, so that when they went to advocate for their cause, it meant something. And they had an element to them that – I hate that this has been associated with, like, right-wing capitalist types uh, because everybody mm-hmm. needs it. Everybody needs a little bit of the, the, the ability to sell themselves.
0: Yeah. It uh, reminds me of like, and it's any context that it crops up in, like you were saying, it doesn't matter if you're post-scarcity Star Trek world. Speaking of which, did he have to say Earl Grey hot? Does anyone drink Earl Grey iced? If you drink iced Earl Grey tea, let me know. Um, But my point was just that This sort of comes up in any context. I'm thinking of late night talk show hosts and I have enough friends of friends that I hear stuff about late night talk show hosts or daytime. Look at Ellen DeGeneres, famously this happened with, but even like your nice guy characters, let's say Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, people like that. Again, the situation is if you ask people who work with them, they go, not when it's business time. When it's business time, he doesn't fuck around. And that's what you tend to hear with people in super advanced positions. And I guess that relegates me to somewhere in the middle, which is fine with me. I can be content with that because I don't think I'll ever be that guy. I can't, I can't grab for, it feels too wrong, but there's a place in the middle. Right. And it's like Jason saying, you need to be proud of what you're doing slash. If you're already proud of what you're doing, then there is no shame in advocating for it. And you have to do that unabashedly.
1: What would you like to do long-term? What's your, what would you like to be doing 20 years from now?
0: Uh, uh, either making movies or writing novels. Either one. Do you – we say making movies. Do you want to be in the movie or do you
1: want to be writing writing the movie and directing No, it? writing. Writing screenplays. I wonder if the listeners are surprised to hear you say that or the ones that maybe that I brought to this and, and only know you from the video work you did at that Crack, that your favorite thing is not
0: performing on what camera. What I'm doing. Oh, performing. Oh, yeah, that might be interesting to people. It goes writing, then editing, then performing. Uh, Although, if it was acting on stage, I would flip it. Acting on stage is infinitely rewarding. Acting for camera is highly technical and annoying. Would you agree with that, Jason, from what you've done? See, here's the thing. I wish I could go back to
1: the 90s internet. Not the the racist internet. The 90s internet where it was all (laughs) text-based. Because that's where mm-hmm. I found myself, because I, you know, I was not a successful in anything I had done. And then I got on the Internet in the late 90s. And it's like, man, you can just be whoever you want to be on here. And I started using a pseudonym, a number of pseudonyms, eventually landing on David Wong, which is a fictional character I had created. But the idea that you could remove yourself from it. So your work was being seen, but you were not subject to scrutiny As a person, you you were not being perceived by an audience, right? In your personal life, your, your face, your body, your hair, no one's judging any of that. It's just your ideas, your humor. And that was amazing because it was like this world where only the ideas mattered. And that's where I made my name. You know, I started going viral as a blogger in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I started writing my first book online, and people did not know that I was married. They didn't know where I lived. They knew nothing about me. There was none of that thing where you would write an article and somebody would say, well, that's what I would expect from somebody who's race, age, Facebook from, says this on it, Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, right. Where they, they can just use that to disqualify you. Cause like, well, of course that's what somebody would say, you know, from the Midwest who's in their thirties and white or whatever. No, it's like this thing I wrote stands on its own. Take, take it or leave it. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. So as time went on, eventually the internet became more image based, um, And then they kind of wanted, you know, when I started, when I got an actual book deal, I got the real job. But cranked at that point. I'm having to go under my real name. Like I would, my byline would say David, but then at the bottom, like they click on my profile that, you know, I I now work there as one of the editors. Mm -hmm. I can't do that under a fake name. And then when I got the first book deal, same thing. We had a pseudonym, but on the, about the author page, it just says, you know, Jason Parjan is blah, blah, blah. And reluctantly more and more because the medium changed. so, for example, around 2009, 2010 podcast came along at crack started podcast. And they asked me beyond it. That was the first time my voice was ever heard by the masses ever. And I still had never appeared in a video of any kind. And I did later like one or two YouTube videos, which was extremely weird. I didn't know how to do it. And my pronunciation of all the words was wrong. But as time has gone on, we've now moved to a point to where I, I have like 55,000 followers on Twitter still and probably 60,000 followers across my three Facebook pages. But TikTok, which is entirely video based,
0: I have 350,000 followers. My videos of have- So guess who has to do a lot of videos by definition? And you may not have chosen that, but that's what it is now. Because now Jason has to make videos. The
1: internet, the, the media moved to a point where now it wants video. So like I have an Instagram, it's just my TikTok videos. My Twitter is now a lot of my TikTok videos. Purely because the technology advanced to a point where you could do that. That that wouldn't have been, you know, smartphones didn't exist mm-hmm. when we started out. But now that you have smartphones, cheap data plans, you know, video that can be streamed quickly. So in order to keep selling books, I have had to become a video personality, which is not just a minor change in medium. It means TikTok wants your face. It wants your
0: voice. Right. It, their algorithm favors- Or it won't. It's, it's not going to spread it around otherwise. Right. The algorithm needs it. Because
1: I tried. When I first started using TikTok last year, I tried doing videos that were just like little animations or a song with the cover of the book or me reading. It did not work. Put my face in the screen. Boom. Then again, it's not because I'm such a beautiful person that, that my face sells the book. It's because their algorithm is tuned to want people in the frame. So by necessity, I'm now doing the exact opposite of what I was doing in the late 90s because the way it works now, it's not, hey, here's this amazing book. We don't know who wrote it. The author is mysterious. Who can say where he is or or how you pronounce his last name? Now it's, hey, look at me. Listen to me. Aren't I interesting? I bet you will like the books I wrote, too. Right, Because that's now it's it's about branding yourself as look at how interesting and funny and clever this guy is. I bet the books he wrote are also interesting, clever and funny. It's the exact, inver- exact inverse. So having to sell not the book, which I'm very comfortable doing, but having to sell myself as mm-hmm. look at this cool, the cool thoughts I have. Look look at the listen to the funny I the funny joke I just thought of. Look at this stuff behind me yeah. in my bedroom.
0: Don't you want to be a Don't you think a whole book of this would, would be, be good. Yeah, don't
1: you want to be a part of this? Because that's like the influencer model of, of selling things. Right. That's how everything is sold now. You know, Mr. Beast has a line of candy bars and Oof, I knew we were gonna
0: bring him Hamburgers
1: yeah. where the whole thing is like, Well, if you like this guy's cool videos,
0: surely you'll want to Buy his candy bars? You'll want his keychain or what. It doesn't matter what. You've bought the brand. Yeah. And that, to sell a book that way, sounds like
1: madness. Because it's like, this is crazy. And I want to say, again, if I could turn back the clock to like stall technological progress where it's all just a blog-based internet, I would do it. But... The reality is, if I have most of you listening close your eyes and picture Mark Twain, you can do it. He has wild hair, a crazy big mustache, and an all white suit. That is right. That and a cigar is a look that he developed when he started doing public speaking appearances because he found out he could make more money doing these speaking tours, and it was super easy compared to writing, because he had a good personality and he could do like his comedy and stuff played really well in person. But he sat down, he calculated that outfit and carefully crafted it. Kurt Vonnegut, when he found out his readers were all hippies, totally changed his look because his author photos in his early books was
0: an academic in like a tweed jacket. And tweed kn- suit, yeah. Kn- kn- and he talks about uh, trying to blend in at GE and be a company man and be a business guy type person, and then finding the hippie movement and deciding, oh, I can be this type person. So I just think it goes to show that it's a conscious reinvention.
1: Yeah. He obsessed over his author photo when he changed his look because he needed to right. look scraggly and scruffy and in like a a counterculture type instead of someone who
0: had sweaters now he has sweaters who had
1: worked really really hard on his craft and and worked really hard on editing his stuff because in that era it became cool to say you're like jack kerouac like i know i just sat down and got high and on I, i did a bunch of shrooms and just typed for 84 straight hours and this novel popped out it's like, well, no, in reality, it's relentless work and editing and word choices and changing and revisions and going back and forth to your editor. It's a very business like thing. But in each of these cases, they knew that they had to build a brand. It, and they I think you're they're okay doing that because again, the work is life-changing. These books are incredible. They he knew his books were great. But also knew that knowing who wrote the book and liking that person and playing a certain role in interviews, I think most authors eventually reach a point where they realize this is important. And and, you know, like Stephen King, plays up. You know, he had at his mansion the gates in front of his house had like a. Bat or something on it. It's like a, some sort of thing. Like a horror author lives here, really trying to play up, you know. And you'll see other authors where they they'll dress kind of like like rock star clothes. Like I'm a, I'm a, a punk weirdo or whatever. This is part of the. It's part of the business, and it runs so counter to how I've always lived my life because I was not this guy in school or anywhere else but i just had to learn how to do it now,
0: i'm not a young person i'm i'm you know i'm going to be 50 before i i know it i didn't want to do comedy per se i thought i would write uh sci-fi and fantasy like thrillers uh or drama uh so it is interesting the way that life will just open up an avenue that's too juicy to not pursue and without at least for me i didn't have the foresight to consciously go oh, the rest of my life, I will probably have the most traction in comedy now because that was my first foot forward. That's how people know me. I basically have to write comedies now. Like, we're making a movie right now, and I could not make the movie if it was a straight drama or a sci-fi thriller. It wouldn't have gotten funded because who am I to do that? Uh, And everything in life is built on every previous thing. So I would essentially be starting over from scratch if, say, I wanted to start selling sci-fi spec scripts. Um, And people do it and there's even been examples of success but i don't think that means what you think it means uh it's easy to think i don't know i i'm guilty of this i'll always look up on wikipedia and find well so-and-so was older than me and did less work and their thing's big you know what i mean but uh that's such a fool's errand because ultimately like you said you there's just the work to do and you have to unabashedly do it can i ask what is some of that crap work like you talked about the you talked about endless podcasting but I know you also put a trailer together and I was surprised to find out you did that yourself so like what are some things that you do yourself that people would probably be shocked about that are specific to books
1: Well I run all of my social media myself and because social media is no longer just all concentrated on Facebook it has totally splintered there's a bunch of it, and it's all in a different format. So I have the TikTok that I do three, three to four videos a day, and it, the ones that don't hit, I, the ones that don't hit, I just delete. That's why you have to do multiple ones. You're waiting for one actually, um, and then I still I post on TikTok on Twitter uh, slash X every day. Um, the Twitter alternatives, Threads and Blue Sky, I both post on every day. I have three Facebook fan pages, one for the John Dystian series, one just for me as an author, and one for the Zoe Ash series. I update all of those. I have an Instagram. I have a Substack newsletter where I do my old school crack style columns at uh, jasonpargen.substack.com. It's free. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. Mostly it's just my my TikTok videos. I have a mailing list newsletter that's on on my link tree. It's on there. I have a Goodreads account that has a built-in blog that I update. And I have a Reddit account that I keep active because I do like occasional author AMAs. Uh, for example, when the book – the day the book came out, it didn't ask me anything on the Reddit book subreddit and got 430 mm-hmm. questions, I think, and sat there for seven straight really? hours answering as many as wow. I could. So I update all of that myself. Um, and that's the thing is that you find when you grow up that lots of jobs – The shocking thing is that the thing you think the job is about is a very small part of the job. (laughs) Like being an actor, maybe 25%, maybe less. Yeah. yeah, Like if you're a full time actor, the amount of time you actually spend acting is microscopic, and the rest of the time is travel, promotion, all that stuff. So, same thing for me, writing is like 15% of my schedule, the other 85% is the promotion stuff. So, the trailer that you can find on my YouTube channel and on my TikTok and all of those video platforms, um, there's a guy who – a fan of mine lives here in Nashville. He worked – he did, like, music videos for various musicians here in Nashville. has been in, uh, like, corporate video production for many years, so he has access to all the stuff, and I just pay him out of pocket. I write the script, and then we go back and forth as he – makes prompts and storyboards and does all the stuff. It takes about a year. We start working about a year before release with the, the general idea. And then he'll just slowly, because again, he's doing the, a lot of the effects work of himself, the, the sound work, all that stuff has to be done just kind of piecemeal on weekends. Cause he has another job, of course. Um, but that's something that I just do myself because I want control over it. Uh, the publisher does some promotional stuff for me. I'm not saying they don't do anything. They, I, I get more from the publisher than most authors do from their publishers. But promotion, the way it works now, has to come from the author, because mm-hmm. the podcasts want me. They want to talk to me, not somebody else. They want to talk to me and do and
0: them. not a press release, right? We can't use that because it's not a written medium. We need the guy there yeah. with
1: TikTok. It has to be me and my face. I cannot hire an actor to play me on TikTok. I cannot have an AI generate a a fake version of me. It has to be me. If I could farm these things out, I would. But what the people want, because you're in this influencer-based market, it has to be me. It has to be my personality, my voice, my ideas, my whatever. And so the amount of myself I give to strangers every day at no cost Knowing that one out of every hundred thousand of them will buy a copy of my book, if you can reach enough tens of millions of people, that adds up to sell just enough books to pay your mortgage (laughs) and and, and to do it as a job. Because I do it full time. Very few authors Mm. get to do this. Very few.
0: Except... On my side, where a lot of people seem to be able to make a living writing for TV and film, just not me so far. But we'll get there. One thing at a time. This is about the books. Um, So you say you would farm it out. Uh, Is that to try and like, you know, we're towards the conclusion here. I don't want to have a positive note on here. Uh, Is it... Does that mean that the 15% is so incredibly rewarding that it's worth the other 85? Is that a good way we can look at this? What can we talk a little bit about? Why do you still choose to do it, sir? After all of that, right? It's, what keeps you in?
1: It's all in service of getting the books into the hands of people uh, because you you just have to understand it. people think what I'm talking about, if it sounds obsessive or whatever, that's the minimum amount of promotion you have to do to sell books at a rate that lets you do it full-time. That is the bare, bare minimum. If I could do, for example, I don't tour. You always hear about my authors going on book tours. You so, oh, right. You, yeah. you sell a lot of books that way. I don't have time. And you sell a lot of books because what you do is you go to a bookstore in a big city and you arrange for yourself to be there and then they promote it for weeks in advance. And that that promotion of the
0: appearance is what sells books. And so you'll you'll show- And they want to sell books, right? They get a cut, so they're incentivized to help you out in that case.
1: Yeah, and so it's this is a key part of any other author's promotional strategy. I don't do that. I'm I'm recording TikToks instead. Like, I'm doing it all online. If I could manufacture a second copy of myself, there's so much more I should be doing in terms of touring, in terms of- but I, I have basically stretched myself as, as far as I can go. I, I don't have any more energy than this. Or it would infringe on my ability to get the book written written in time. But, yeah the, yeah, the thing I actually want to do, it's the same thing for you ask any actor and they'll say, you know, 95% of the job is standing around waiting for them, especially on a big budget movie. You're You're standing around waiting for them to get set up to do all that stuff, or your time is spent in between projects, but it's all about when you finally get to film, when you actually get to do your performance, when the the thing actually comes out and people get to enjoy it, that makes it all worth it. It is all in service of that. And I think that is a particular mindset you have to get used to the idea of you, you're you pouring energy and love into something that, that will not reach an audience for maybe three years because of just the way timing works out. You know, it takes mm-hmm. me generally two years to write a novel. And then once you've finished, finished it, the publication process takes most of another year. Just the, the doing the cover and, and the editing process, all of that, that's just how long it takes. So from the time you had the idea, it's like, oh, people are going to love this, to – the strangers actually seeing your thing and feeling the emotion you wanted them to feel is years apart. Not everybody can mm-hmm. do that. But all of that time you spent, you know, all that energy you put in promoting all that, it's all for that moment when the thing actually goes out into the world and people are reading it. And then, as we mentioned earlier, it's not an instant gratification thing. The, the, the book that made my writing career, John Dies at the End, again, I wrote it, I started writing it in the year 2000, started posting it. And it floated along. I did it a little bit at a time for five years, giving it away for free. I sold the film rights in 2007. At that point, I don't know, maybe four or 5,000 printed copies were in existence. Everybody else had just read it for free on the internet. And then I got the actual book deal to release it in hardcover, it came out in 2009, I think. Mm. so you, you're talking about most of a decade from I just got from to, when
0: you had the idea this
1: weird idea for a, like a weird like like I had in my mind the tone of this thing uh, of this kind of comedy, but it also gruesome horror story to it becoming a hardcover release, you know worldwide or in multiple countries. It was about a decade. And it slowly grew, like when it got into print for when I started doing it, I self-published it and sold like, a I don't know, 1,000 or 2,000 copies, and then a print-on-demand publisher picked it up. They, they gave me a $500 advance, and they got it into some bookstores. But I could see the sales reports come in and I and see that I had sold uh, 22 copies one week, or 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 it's, it's getting to be mm-hmm. Christmas time. I, I sold 54 copies this week that's where i was before the movie deal came along so it, it was a thing where in my mind i would occasionally see that and realize okay this is this is just a little hobby i'm doing uh, you know i i'm making a dollar mm-hmm. off each of these it sells it's not even paying my cable bill um but that's okay if people are reading it they're enjoying it but the idea that i could get to do it for a living was laughable and if i hadn't gotten that the the movie deal which was a one in a million shot. uh, I I wouldn't be doing it for a living. I wouldn't be here today. I I got, you know, despite all of my relentless promotion and the crazy work hours I I work, I
0: still wouldn't be here without that, that break. Yeah. It's tough to hear, but I've heard it a million times, which I guess evens out the odds statistically speaking, but Uh, almost everyone who finally makes it to a place where they really want to be or one of those really coveted roles, uh, if you talk frankly with them, they will say at some point, it was a one a million shot that I never could have predicted. There was some step where something happened. You know, actors call it the big break, but I think in every career, there's uh, if you end up escalating your position, it's because there was some kind of crazy, unlikely thing happened. Because the grim reality is that we don't have a lot of social mobility in this country, even though that's what the whole system is supposedly based on. But I do find that uh, we all note that it's wild when someone from humble beginnings makes it big. That's like a thing to remark upon, so... Um, it's a tall order, but I know if people are anything like me, you want, you want to connect, you want to make your mark in the world. And if it's through art, then you're sort of relegated to doing all this stuff that we just went into. I'm trying to do more and more of it for my own book. Um, but you know, even at Cracked, we were, of course, following analytics, doing what the algorithm said, didn't always work out for us, but, but we tried, um, yeah. Okay. So we said the good, we said the bad. There's the facts of books. Um, I think we should plug one more time before we're out. Jason, where can people, I guess they just Google the name, right? Just search for
1: it. Yeah, I My username is Jason K Pargin, P-A-R-G-I-N on all of the platforms. That's my my TikTok okay. name, which would probably okay. be the first thing that comes up. Yeah, I don't know why I had to start using it. I think I found that one of them, somebody had already taken Jason Pargin, so I had to throw the mm-hmm. the middle initial in there. But Jason K. yeah, on Twitter, the Twitter clones, uh, Instagram, TikTok, of course, is the big one now. Far more people at this point have seen my TikTok videos than everything else I've done combined, including my cracked articles. Including
0: reading your books, right? Oh, oh, but I dwarfs dwarfs
1: reading the books. It's not even even close. Uh, In terms of things that people have seen from me, number one is TikTok videos. Number two is the John Dies at the End movie which has played on cable and Netflix for, you know, now a decade and has been seen by tens of mm-hmm. millions of people. And then f- below that is my articles that crack. And then far, far below that is people who have actually bought copies of my books over the years. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, it, it's, you can find me on any of those. And then you go into my bio on any of them and it's got a link to all of my stuff, including the Substack and the the email newsletter. That's all it got a giant list of all of the 12 or however many platforms I maintain Every single day to to sell enough books to keep to keep doing this full time. And also, I will say right now, I do not for the re- expect that for the rest of my life I will get to be a full time author. That is not the normal way that happens. Most people, mm-hmm. like I, will have to get a day job at some point. And in fact, I only am doing writing books full time is because the crack job went away. It basically they restructured my job into something else and I, you know, peacefully walked away. But that, right. I, that was never my plan. My plan was always to have a day job that gives me health insurance benefits, 401k, and then write books on the side. And then I just figured I would just save my, my book money. Uh, I am doing this full time because it kind of just planned, panned pan out that Happened way. Happened
0: that way. Yeah. That's the other thing is it just happens away. Uh, I go into this a lot in my book, which is called The Climb. You can find it at patreon.com slash smallbean slash shop. Um, you can also find a demo there. I called it a demo, but it's the first 50 pages for free. So you can read that and see if you get hooked. You also heard a little bit of it at the opening of this episode. So I think that's all I can do to plug. Um, thank you again, Jason, for all the... Adv- Jason sent me such like a wall of almost a whole article of great advice and ways to plug the book. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking the time today.
1: Yeah, I hope it helped. I hope it helps somebody out there uh, who is in a similar situation. Uh, please be, get get used to promoting yourself. Uh, it, it's It feels gross. You don't have to sell your soul. I, I feel like neither of us have done that. We've tried to, even in our promotion,
0: tried to be, tried to make it fun you know, tried to. Yeah, no, making your TikToks are not. Yeah. That was my other question, actually, before we go. How often, because you said you post on Twitter and it's clones once a day, how often is it a plug and how often is it just a joke to engage your audience? Oh, no, it has to be, it has
1: to be about 95% free content, 5% plug. And even that's being, right. being aggressive. Like if you go on my TikTok, you will but you see, you know, pinned to the top That's what
0: I'm saying. Your TikToks are not plugs. Yeah. They're fun. But little that's that games is also the
1: economy. Is, is you grow that following, and then you slip in a sales message because TikTok knows when you're promoting, and if they detect you promoting, they will kill your account. They. I know it seems like the world is full of people who are promoting. Um, the platforms don't want that. They they, If they detect people leaving leaving the platform, which if they click on a link to buy your book, they have left the platform, right? They will penalize you. So you have to give and give and give free content to the platforms and then slip in a promotional message. And even like this is one of the big changes that Elon Musk made to Twitter was to really kill anything that has a URL in the post. He kills it. The preview thing that comes up when you post URL, he he crippled that so that it wouldn't show the title on there. Like he he really clamped down on people promoting anything on Twitter that takes people off Twitter. Which of course, again, if you have an Amazon link to your book or to your Patreon link to your book, that
0: takes you off Twitter. It's specifically set up to stop fighting that. against me all the time. Yeah. but as you say. I gotta try. Like, you gotta do it anyway, because you gotta try. And if you slip it in, sometimes they'll let you have a modest hit with a publicity tweet. Uh, But I have also noticed that you have to give a preponderance of just funny shit, or it starts turning against you. Oh, the machines, the machines are here, Um, I think that's all. As I talk into a machine, uh, connecting with my friend over a machine about how we all serve machines that's where i'm ending this episode i hope you're not and if you're out there uh struggling with any portion of your job just know that you're not in it alone everyone struggles with most of their job even jobs that seem cool they are cool but there's a bunch of bullshit to wade through um yeah i think we're out we did the plugs we're good jason thank you listener thank you I have no codified way to end this show. (laughs) You don't have a catchphrase that... (laughs) Oh, I'm so upset. Something like that. No, I have nothing. Hey, this is Abe from the Small Beans Network. You heard at the beginning of the episode an excerpt of Michael Swaim's new novel, The Climb. You can purchase the book at patreon.com smallbeans slash shop. And while you're there, take a moment to throw some scratch to get exclusive content from the Small Beans Network. For five American dollars, you can get two new episodes of One Epsomanship, episodes of Star Trek The Next Futurama, and Spielboys, as well as behind-the-scenes updates on the movie we're making this year, Papa Bear, a semi-autobiographical coming-of-age story for Michael Swaim about his father coming out as a gay furry when he was 17. Plenty of heart and jokes and content over here, so swim on over, patreon.com slash smallbeans, baby. We promise it's worth your while.